1: Kids, flush out your protocol buffers and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 383 with guest John Skeet, recorded live Monday, September twenty second, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who is exceedingly modest, and damn proud of it, Carl Franklin!
2: Thank you very much, and welcome to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin, your host for low these many years and low many more years to come. Richard Campbell is not with us for the intro, but he'll be here for the interview in just a few moments. Uh, you know what time it is. That's right. It's time for the .NET Rocks Tech Ed Europe sweepstakes. Time to announce this week's winner. Every week we put out a question from a previous week's show on the Internet at dot uh, netrockscom slash Barcelona. You can uh, answer that question every week to win a Tom Ben Brain Bag. We select one lucky winner every week. Tom Ben Brain Bag's the best backpack, rucksack, uh, laptop bag in the world. Both Richard and I have one. We've had them for years. Not even a frayed stitch, ladies and gentlemen. These things are indestructible. So anyway, the idea is that uh, on October 20th, we're going to uh, pick a one of those weekly winners uh, at random to win an all expense paid trip almost to that's right tech ed europe in barcelona which is happening november 10th through the 14th and if you win and you can't go this year because it's kind of short notice you can go next year and the prize includes airfare hotel and admission to tech ed europe in barcelona spain you don't even have to be european to win you can be from, uh, well, anywhere, anywhere in the world that you listen to .NET Rocks. Uh, if you win, we'll fly you there. But that's not enough. We have a winner this week of the .NET Rocks TechEd Europe sweepstakes. And the winner is Michael Aird from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Congratulations, Michael. And Michael correctly answered the question, according to Billy Hollis, how many days should your first WPF training class be? What is the ideal number of days for your first WPF training class? His answer on the show was three. So congratulations again, Michael, and good luck in the big drawing. Okay, time now for Better Know a Framework. And this is a little section that I do, if you haven't heard this before, that uh, every week I like to shine a little light on a dusty corner of the .NET framework and well, oh, the idea is over time by osmosis you'll sort of understand what there is to know in there. Um, of course this isn't training, this is just saying here's what it is and what it does go look it up, find some samples for more information. Uh, I've been talking about the system.service model uh, namespace which is where Windows Communication Foundation lives and breathes. We have this idea of channels in WCF um, much like remoting, uh, if you were around for the days of remoting, you know that, uh, that that was the sort of the first crack at some sort of high-level communication in a, uh, a framework. So uh, there's a Channel Factory class that creates and manages the channels that are used by clients to send messages to service endpoints. And uh, it's a it's an abstract class. You have to inherit it. channel system.servicemodel.channelfactory. And there is a class called Channel Factory of T-Channel, which is a factory that creates channels of different types that are used by clients. So basically, it uses generics. You send in uh, a T-Channel, a channel type, and uh, it's a nice little factory there. So so there you go, the Channel Factory class. Uh, As I said, Richard will be here in just a minute. But uh, meantime, I want to reiterate uh, and offer that Infusion, our friends in New York City, are putting on the table for select listeners of .NET Rocks who want to work in Manhattan on SharePoint and in Silverlight uh, with a great group of people. They will put you up in an apartment for a year in Manhattan as well as pay you a New York City salary. So if you want to live in New York and work in New York for a year, this is the way to go. It's the New York Tour from Infusion. Uh also they have uh, uh job opportunities in Dubai. If you're one of those people who's adventurous and you want to go to the current Mecca of technological hedonism, that is the place to be, Dubai. Uh silly bandwidth over there too, just by the way, and uh very very high tech and very business oriented. Uh if you're interested in any of those things or maybe even working on Microsoft Surface Uh, which is another thing that Infusion is doing, send an email to carl at franklins.net, and I will forward it along to the appropriate people. Our guest today is John Skeet. He's a C-sharp and Java developer currently working at Google in the U.K., For many years, he's been a frequent poster in technical news groups and has been a C-Sharp MVP since 2003. His C-Sharp websites contain some of the most frequently referenced articles on topics such as singleton implementations and parameter passing. He was a member of the writing team for Groovy in Action in 2007, and his first solo book, C-Sharp In-Depth, came out in May 2008. John is interested in tracking how languages and platforms are evolving to blend imperative and functional styles of programming both, as well as providing more support for parallelism. While his day job is programming in Java, John is a C-Sharp developer at heart. In his 20% time at Google, he's currently working on a C-Sharp port of the recently open-sourced protocol buffers serialization framework. Hi, John. Welcome to .NET Rocks. The the first thing that comes to my mind when I read your bio is this uh, protocol buffers serialization framework. That sounds very interesting. What is that?
3: Basically, in Google, we need to cart quite a lot of data around, as you can imagine. Um, and you really don't want all of that data sloshing around as XML because it becomes very, very big, even bigger than the amounts of data we already handle. And that also takes a long time to parse and then to format again. Um, so, Google, a while ago, I don't know exactly how long it's been around, but um, Google developed protocol buffers, which are nice and portable. So, we use them in Java, Python, C++, goodness knows which other languages it's been ported to internally, um, as our serialization framework, which is obviously used in conjunction with a number of other technologies, some of which have been open-sourced already and some of which haven't. Um, and Recently, the Java, C++, and Python Uh, versions of the framework were open-sourced. And I immediately thought, well, I want the C-sharp world to have this as well.
2: So Um, what what exactly does it do? I mean, it's an implementation of some sort of data format?
3: Yeah, so it is its own data format. It's a bit like ASN1, although less complex than that. Um, So it it handles a certain number of types, mostly integers, floating points, um, strings, and byte arrays. So it's pretty low-level stuff. You, you're not serializing huge objects with custom types, etc. But you can embed protocol buffer messages within each other, and I see. you can have repeated messages.
0: And it's a binary.
3: Uh, it's a binary serialization, serialization
2: format. Serialization format. Okay.
0: But it's but it's platform-neutral. I mean, the funny thing about uh, binary serializations is you'd be surprised how many different ways you can encode a four-byte integer.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, geez. And indeed, there are at least I think there are three or four ways you can encode it in protocol buffers. So you can say, I want a fixed size integer, which will just be serialized as four bytes. Or you can say, I want to serialize it in a compressed format. So it'll only take one byte if it's small, two bytes if it's a bit bigger. Mm. Or you can say, well, hey, it's a signed integer. So I'll encode it with what's known as a zigzag encoding. So that. 1 and minus 1 both take a small amount to a minus 2, etc. And then when you start getting to around 128 or minus 128, it'll start taking 2 bytes, etc.
2: And I guess that's all determined on whatever is unpacking the data.
3: Yeah, well, well you describe your protocol buffer message um, saying effectively this is an integer or this is a fixed size integer. Okay. Um, but it's all nicely defined. You don't have any of the messes saying, well, it's at least four bytes or anything like that, and the protocol buffer uh, platform or library, whatever you want to call it, takes care of um, you not having to care about that when you're actually using the objects. so it will just be a .NET in 32 um, when it comes out the other end, or uint um, 32, if you've declared that it's unsigned.
2: I imagine there's got to be a lot of queuing and, and locking and things like that going
3: on. No locking whatsoever in fact, it's all assumed to be single-threaded, um, and th- even the queuing side of things, uh, protocol buffers themselves don't define any sort of streaming format. So there's been a bit of discussion in within the community that's quickly grown up around it. I guess about, I was
0: thinking of Google itself.
3: Oh, um, within Google, oh yes, there's.
0: I, I was. Know, I had this great visualization of sloshing data. Yeah, that <laughs> just that it was a lovely term. Tons and tons of data. <laughs> By the way, wasn't this what XML was for? Uh,
3: Yeah, well, XML is nice and um, human-friendly, although I gather that's a debatable statement these days. I've never had much of a problem reading some nicely formatted XML.
0: Yeah, although there's some appallingly formatted XML out there, too.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Much
0: of it generated by Microsoft, as I recall. I've seen it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But XML is nice for humans, but really isn't nice from a parser point of view. Um, so it depends which parser you use and how many extensions you're using and namespaces, etc. Um, but basically, if you've got a wire format that is designed to be binary from the start, it's bound to be more, e- more efficient. Yeah. And there are various alternatives. Um, you know, it's not like Google's come up with the idea of a binary serialization protocol and we're the only ones to have done that. Um, it's just this happens to be what we've been using already.
2: And I guess beyond the uh, parsing is just the scalability thing. I mean, like, this is one of the reasons why you use it at Google, right? Because you've got so much going on so fast. I mean, talk about the ultimate scaling nightmare. So, you you know, every every bit counts.
3: Absolutely, yes. When you've got that much data, if you're writing a log message or whatever, if it's taking an average of a couple of bytes more per log message. In most companies, maybe that's not going to be a problem. When it's generating several gigabytes of this every day, you probably care a little bit more.
0: No kidding. Uh, And the other thing you said in your bio, which I think we we probably can define better, is the 20% time. I've heard of this, but I think it'd be a good story to tell. What is it really like to use your 20% time?
3: Well, so the idea of 20% time is... Every engineer at Google should be able to go to his manager and say, I would like to spend effectively one day a week, and you can sort of bunch it up and work four days flat out on your main project and then a week on your 20% project or whatever. Right. But a rough 20% of your time on something which will be beneficial to Google in the long run, um, but needn't be working on a Google technology or a Google-based project. So we would like protocol buffers to be widely adopted. We would like them to be available for many platforms because you could imagine that in the future we may release APIs which allow you to speak in protocol buffers as one way of doing things. So obviously from a mobile device, uh, obviously bandwidth's a little bit limited, not a lot of processing power, protocol buffers are a great match. So it's nice if we can express that to people um, for APIs uh, all over the place, you know, calendar G Data feeds, well, G GData's nice, but again, you've got the, the XML overhead, et cetera. What about if we had a protocol buffer feed? Um, so it, it's nice if you can use that from multiple devices, and why would we want to force you to use Java, C++, or Python? So you can see it's sort of to Google's advantage for there to be protocol buffers out there for .NET. Um, it's definitely to my advantage because it means I get to keep in the C-sharp world every right. so often. Everyone's happy. Really, it's a fantastically forward-thinking policy.
0: Um, It reminds Hewlett Packard had something like this way back when. I don't know if they still have it, but uh, for their engineers as well, that that you can work on your own project also.
3: Right, and was it reality?
0: Well, therein lies the question, which is you know (laughs) uh, what really happened in that. And I guess that's for me. The idea is fine. The challenge is getting the permission for the project you want to work on.
3: Yeah. And I think to be fair, it probably varies by manager. I've got a lovely manager. Um, and I think most managers are supportive of it. And the, the idea is really, unless you're proposing something that's clearly not in any way, shape or form, anything to do with Google now or in the future, you should by default be able to just go ahead and do it. Right. Um, the default position is, yeah, go ahead, have fun.
2: So speaking of c sharp mm-hmm. and c sharp in depth as uh, the title of your book is the um, the probably you know there's a lot of great features in c sharp three o and yep. i I think probably one of the more future minded ones or you know sort of to be continued features that points to something else is anonymous types right and I think that this is a sort of a, a precursor to a much more dynamic language but i've always i've always uh, had a question in my mind about how we're going to combine sort of dynamic languages with with obviously typed strongly typed languages like mm. c sharp and what that monster's going to look like when it comes out
3: and i guess it'll look like song. the dlr
2: <laughs> yeah that that the dlr exactly
3: I haven't had much to do with the DLR itself yet. I'm looking forward to having a go when it's a bit more mature. And just to, um, just
2: in, just before you go on there, we'll define DLR, the dynamic language runtime. Yeah. It's so been a while sitting, since we've used that acronym.
3: Sure. It's sitting on top of the um, common language runtime. There are interesting ideas around. Um, I saw one screencast with a very smart guy saying, maybe it was a mistake to make the CLR itself so strongly typed as a as a base platform maybe we should have an untyped base platform that you could then put a strongly typed layer on and a dynamically typed layer on and somehow have the two communicate with each other and fun stuff like that
2: well that's the kind of question that i always have when i hear about the dlrs is you know you're essentially making such a fundamental change that it affects things all the way down the stack and you know how are you going to do that efficiently
3: yeah um And I guess the question is, how efficient do you need it to be if you can mix and match? So, so long as you can do bits that really do need to perform extremely fast, so long as you can do those, um, if I say natively, CLR natively, so in C-sharp or whatever you want to use, if the dynamic part that's maybe used to create the user interface and doesn't actually spend much of its time doing logical side of things... If that can execute fast enough and call really quickly into your um, C sharp code, then it's probably going to be good enough.
2: Yeah, I suppose that's it. Um, the the dynamic language purists would say, well, just the fact that I can make strongly typed variables and objects uh, means that you know, that it's not pure or whatever. But but I, I guess you're right. I mean, it ultimately comes down to being a good programmer and knowing what to use, when to use it.
3: Absolutely, and having a wide toolkit. Right. And I think that's going to become increasingly important, not just in the dynamic side, but certainly in the functional side. Maybe not even having a functional language in your toolkit to use professionally, but being sufficiently aware of functional paradigms and how you might approach a problem in a different way, and you think, well, well what can I do about that? In C, three, for instance.
4: And I,
2: I also just want to mention that we recently did a show with Bill Wagner on DNR TV at dnr.tv.com. It's a screencast show where he actually shows you uh, some of the some of the actual the good and the bad of of uh, these new features, including anonymous types. But um, the classic reaction that most developers have when they first see this is, oh, it looks too much like, you know, uh, using, declaring something as object or whatever. But yeah. once you discover that under the hood, there really is a type system there. Oh, it's all still static. It's um, all still static. It's just that you don't have to do the goo.
3: And even, even leaving anonymous types aside, uh, people get very nervous when they see VAR. Well, yeah. And they assume <laughs> it means variant.
2: Variant. Uh, Don't say the V word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something that's going to morph on them.
3: And in fact, um, not wishing to steal Eric Lippert's um, thunder because he's the mm. one who mentioned this to me, but we've already got variant in C-sharp. It's called object. It yeah. is just if you declare stuff as object, that's pretty much the equivalent of variant. Yeah. And it's nothing to do with var at all. Um, I mean, there are still good reasons not to use var everywhere, but I think it could probably be more widely used than people use it at the moment.
0: I, yeah. I do get a sense that there is a uh, uh, discrimination against it because it was so badly abused back in the in the VB five, VB six days.
3: Yeah, well, a, a similarly named but different feature was abused.
0: Right, um, right, good point.
3: It's it's whether you think that the sort of redundancy of declaring a variable and specifying that you're constructing. An object of that type. Is that redundancy a good thing or a bad thing? And it's making everything very explicit, which is good in some ways. On the other hand, it's extra fluff. Redundancy is the enemy of information density, as, again, Eric Lippert put it. Um, So I like to think of it as when I write code that I want people to see what's going on without concentrating too hard on exactly how it's achieving things when I want them to just be able to see the code and say, ah, this is doing some filtering, it's doing some projecting, I'm then writing the output, and it's doing it with a collection, and I don't really care what that collection type is, then var's great. When it's absolutely important, even with a collection, if you're using a collection, say you're using some dictionary that ensures ordering as well, then it's probably worth... Effectively raising a red flag and saying, "Hey guys, this variable really is one of these, and it's important that that it's one of these because it has specific
2: properties." I also think of if you're going to take some one of these variables and share it outside of your uh, your method, your code, uh, you pretty much don't know what's going to be how it's going to be used in the future, mm-hmm. and you probably don't want to make it an anonymous type if it's something that's static within an atomic function or some sort of set thing that's just going to be used once and get thrown away
3: oh for anonymous types that's certainly the case oh i'm sorry Uh, i think it's sorry i i'm not wishing to have a go at all it's worth um separating var uh, so implicitly typing uh, implicitly typed local variables from anonymous types um, they tend to be used together because anonymous types would be very hard to use without implicit typing. Right. But you certainly can use var in other cases. So where at the moment you might write um, list of int x equals new list of int. And you think, well, why am I having to say the same thing twice? Yeah. Hey, let's just write var x equals new list of int. And they mean exactly the same thing. No anonymous types necessary, but it's it just reads a little better to me.
2: Right. And readability is always a good thing. It's the most important thing. Yeah, as long as you don't trade off ridiculous performance, but it's always better. I mean, the C language is a prime example of why readability is important. Yeah.
3: And why macros, in the C kind of sense of them, just an abomination. A
2: pure yeah. evil. Yeah. Many times some developer says, hey, I managed to squeeze 10 lines of code into one statement. I'm like, okay. <laughs> well,
0: uh, I, and I was just thinking this as we were going over this, is isn't is it funny how we were just talking about readability because the language is too verbose, you know, yep. full of this extra syntax that that obscures the actual meaning of the code versus what C++ does, where it's like, that's one line of code. How hard could it be to read? Yeah.
3: Absolutely. And it's and stunning. Fact, I, I had an email from someone a long time ago saying, hey, here's a, a different way of doing singletons, which lets me get away with introducing a singleton with only one line of code.
4: Yes, yeah, but that
3: one line of code was 250 characters wide.
4: Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
3: But that met his coding conventions of it can only be one line of code. Yeah,
2: and even a- if it is all on one line, break it off into separate lines so we can yeah. understand, you know, Absolutely. just like
3: basic things about
2: readability.
0: Yeah. Somebody's going gonna, somebody's gonna to inherit that someday. Yeah, you're going to hurt somebody with that. <laughs> Poke an eye out.
3: And in fact, going back to anonymous types, thinking readability, there's a feature I would quite like to see. I doubt that it'll be in c 4, but I quite like the idea of it in c 5, which is to take the idea of anonymous types. Hey, let's be able to declare a type and have some properties, and it's nice and immutable, and it's got a, a good override of string and equals and hash code without having to declare all those things ourselves. Well, how about if we had a way of declaring that and naming it at the same time, So you could have some cut-down version of uh, your person entity or your customer order, or it is just a few bits and pieces from other entities stuck together. But you want to be able to name it so that you can return it from a method, etc., but without going through all the fuss of defining all the properties yourself, including getters and setters. If you could just say class or simplified class foo, it's got these properties of these types. Give me a constructor that does the right thing. Give me all the overrides. It's just a simple data type, and then at a later date, if you wanted to turn it into a more complicated type that had proper behavior associated with it, etc., you could then go and do so without breaking any code, and life just, I reckon, would become significantly neater at that
0: point. Yeah, that sounds harmless, but then the radar in the back or the you know warning system in back of my head goes. How can that be abused?
3: Yes. And some of the abuses you can make of some of the C Sharp 3 features are really quite horrendous. I mean, it's it's fun to think of them sometimes. The things you can do with a query expression that you wouldn't expect to are quite evil. So a query expression is going to translate into some C Sharp 3 code. Well, what if instead of saying from A in database.customers you just did from a in and then the name of some type and the query expression can still be translated it'll just expect there to be a static method called select or where or whatever it is and you can do some really evil things or maybe it's not even um, a method that it's going to call it will retrieve the value of a property which so long as it's a delicate of the right type it can then be called there's some weird and wonderful stuff you can do
2: so, um you taking a glance at C-Sharp 4.0, I imagine?
3: I have kept up with what's being said on the blogs. Um, in particular, Eric Lippert's blog tends to be um, very informative to show what the C-Sharp team is thinking about, not necessarily right. committing to for C-Sharp 4. Um, there have been very broad hints, if if not confirmations, that there will be enhanced variants.
4: Do you have a
2: wish list?
3: I have a wish list, um, much of which I don't think will be covered at all. I mean, the, the absolute head of my <laughs> wish list is, let's make immutability easier. Yeah. So C Sharp 3 made it really easy to make types mutable. So you've got automatic properties, you've got object initializers, and they make it really easy to just build a mutable object. And they almost encourage you to do that when really you want an immutable object or immutable type. So I would like ways that you could use the same kind of syntax for object initializers, but initializing an immutable object, in an immutable type, and likewise be able to just say I want these properties, but I want them to be read-only after construction. Um, so that that's certainly my chief wish, which I don't believe is in C# four, but I know that the C# team is thinking about. Um, in C# Sharp 4, we've already mentioned the DLR, and uh, there's been announced the intention to have some sort of dynamic access within C#, Sharp, making it a sort of dynamic client. So it would be able to call into things dynamically, but not be accessed dynamically. It won't it won't be able to react to dynamic calls um, in the same way that you could in Ruby or Groovy or Python or whatever. But you will be able to call into untyped APIs relatively easily so you've got use cases for that of calling into python or iron python iron ruby etc and also it makes things like office a lot easier to do ironically it's sort of borrowing from vb it's um getting rid of option strict but only within a, a tightly scoped block so it's sort of the equivalent of unsafe but for dynamic calling conventions
0: that's it yeah it's interesting it's an interesting way to think about the problem
3: Yeah, I mean, I haven't done much um, office automation, but it doesn't look terribly nice.
0: (laughs) Well, and yeah, it it was it was good when it was VBA, and it really hasn't gotten past that. And and I've never been thrilled with any of the VSTO options. Right, even this latest incarnation, still, it's a struggle.
3: I've tried VSTO just just enough to build a sample with my father, ironically, um, just to say, hey, you can put some. C-sharp stuff into your Excel spreadsheet. And to give them credit, it worked pretty much first time.
0: Yeah. No, but I've,
4: at I've,
3: the same time, it I'm doesn't impressed. feel quite right. Um.
0: Yeah, it's, it's definitely... They need to rewrite Office. <laughs> In a oh, managed language, do man. you think? <laughs> well, it's been done, right? I mean, look at the change from Office 4 to Office 95, where they went calm. Yeah, it has been done, and I think it's time. It's they it's would have like to ship an entirely
2: different skew of office in order yeah. to make that work. I'm with you because they can't break
0: those. They can't break those COM objects.
3: That's the problem. It's the backward compatibility yeah. nightmare that Microsoft will always have.
0: But uh, no, they didn't always have it. They, in Office 4, they had DDE, they kept it in 95, and they finally let it go. Yeah, but n-
2: both people who used it really didn't care all that much.
0: I cared, and <laughs> I used it. <laughs> but uh, I think that's the point, is that you have this eventual transformation. Yeah. I Part of me wonders if they haven't been sitting back there wondering if .NET was just a fad. Oh, I
3: don't know.
0: No, it's
2: all about compatibility. I think they want to, but they I don't can't.
3: think it's necessary for Microsoft to actually have that many places where they would use .net in their own applications. I don't think that's necessarily important. And it's nice that some things like LiveWriter for instance is a managed application. Right. And it's entirely suitable for it to be a managed application. I'm not particularly looking for Microsoft to write Office or Explorer or SQL Server or anything in managed code. But it's nice that they can put some integration options in. That's important to me, but really, why would I want them to spend time creating, recreating the bugs that they've already had and getting <laughs> things right again over a period of many years?
0: The existing office is still written very much at C++. Rumor has it there's still a bunch of machine code in Excel, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> You know, we're not asking them to write it all in a .NET language, we're just asking it to be .NET savvy.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But it it always amuses me when people, particularly on news groups, say Microsoft clearly don't believe in .NET, otherwise they'd have rewritten Office. It's like, that's really not particularly a strong argument. No, it's not. You can make something really great for other people to use without it being applicable to every single thing that you do. I most Frankly, most software companies aren't Microsoft. They don't have the same problems that Microsoft has. Just like there are things within Google, which it would be sort of fun to release as open source, but really very few people would care because very few people have that many machines to manage or they run into different problems. And there's there's nothing worse than a tool that claims to solve all problems. Unfortunately, .NET doesn't claim to. It's very good at what it does, which is not necessarily to build operating systems, Cosmos aside, um, device drivers, etc.
2: I want to just take a minute to uh, bring you a message from our sponsor, Telerik. Our friends at Telerik are working hard as usual to bring you exciting new stuff for your .NET toolbox. How about two brand new control suites, RAD Controls for WPF and RAD Controls for Silverlight? That's right, if you started building next-generation applications, you now have UI components with Telerik quality and Telerik reliability. Both product lines are derived from the same code base and share the same API, so transition is seamless. Uh, They have many improvements in the other robust suites for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Windows Forms also as well as the intuitive reporting tool. But product alone isn't everything. To jumpstart your projects and help you easily get up to speed with these great tools, Telerik has got a couple of unique training resources, the Telerik Interactive Trainer and Telerik TV, of course, which I'm the host of. Now that's what I call summer heat. Go check out all the details at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And if you happen to run into those guys, say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks.
0: You, uh, you have some interest in parallelism. And, of course, the, the, all these languages seem to be heading for parallelism in some fashion or another. And uh, yeah, you know, At the we, same time, I think that, yeah, C-sharp needs to get simpler. Parallelism is not simple.
3: Indeed. And I don't think we should expect it to become simple. We should expect it to become just about doable. Because
0: <laughs> so, it's pretty much impossible now.
3: Yeah. I, I think of myself as a sort of amateur enthusiast about threading. Um, I find people like Joe Duffy absolutely incredible that they can yeah. understand the threading so thoroughly and all the nuances and all the really odd edge cases. And it scares me when Joe Duffy made a blog post a little while ago. So he's one of the, um, one of the leads for the Parallel.net framework. Um, so he knows things inside out. And he was rereading the memory model Um, Documentation a while ago and found something that he didn't expect, and that really scares me.
0: Yeah, no kidding.
3: (laughs) If if something can surprise him, then what's it going to do to the rest of us? It turned out to be fairly harmless, I think. But yeah, threading is hard. But this going back to the functional toolkit side of things, once you've got a functional mindset, even if you're not using a functional language, you can try to start separating tasks into functional blocks that can then be composed together, parallelized, etc. And the parallel extensions framework does make things a lot easier than it would be, so long as you can decompose things to start with. Right. And I've done little toy applications. I haven't tried parallel extensions in anger, which is when you really run into the issues, or think, my word, this is amazing.
0: Parallel extensions in anger.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Don't look back in anger several times at the same time.
0: The bitter developer.
3: (laughs) But the trouble is, it might take you a long time to become bitter, because things could look like they're working until you run it on the 64 processor machine in two years' time. Surprise!
0: Yeah. Well, then that's the thing is, I don't think it's all that tough to write multi-threaded code. It's just really tough to debug multi-threaded code.
3: Well, and
2: code. that's it. You can't debug it. You have, to, yeah. you have to understand the theory, and you have to rely on that knowledge of the theory in order to go through with your brain and say, is this safe? Is this safe? Is that safe?
3: Exactly. I and that's why I always debug. advocate keeping it as simple as possible. Right, yeah. So we mentioned earlier on my Singleton page, um, one of the main reasons for writing that was to try to discourage people from using something called double-check blocking which is, let's see if we can do a singleton and never take out a lock, or take out a lock only very, very occasionally. And as it happens, .NET um, and Java, in fact, provide class initialization, type initialization, which does exactly what you want for singletons. But even if it didn't, I'd be advocating, just take the lock out every time. It's really not going to hurt you nearly as much as getting it wrong is. Yeah. And... Double-check locking can work in .NET if you're careful. In Java, I think it's still broken. But really, why would you want to subject yourself to trying to think about that kind of stuff when you've got far more important business logic to be getting on with? If it ever looks like it's a performance bottleneck and you've profiled the heck out of it, then, well, maybe you could try lock-free stuff. But otherwise, lock-free programming uh, just seems like a waste of time and mental energy to me.
0: Well, I think the problem here is that uh, it is very tough to profile the impact of memory locking.
3: Yes. So it's easy to
0: blame it for things that it's not actually responsible for.
3: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's very difficult to get real world statistics. You can, suppose you have a real world workload that you've discovered by taking good auditing logs or whatever, you can replay that through your server and say, well, I spent, three hours doing the serialization so i'll have a look at that bit you can't do that for locking because you've got to have the timing as well you've yes. got to know hey i had a contended lock this many times whereas it was uncontended this many times and hey most of the time it was uncontended it's not really costing me anything
0: uh, my, my favorite of these is that turning the profiler on alters the timing enough that it gets rid of the contention
3: absolutely quantum thing you can either measure it or you can see it happening but you can't do both you can't, you
2: can't say both. the quantum mechanics problem yeah. yeah
3: quarks which is why i really just want to leave it to experts as far as possible let them do if they can come up with lock-free um components that i can reuse that's fa- fantastic absolutely fabulous and parallel extensions has really cool thread pool like task managers etc which do as little locking as possible and that's great because they can be paid to sit there for eight hours and look at a bit of code and think, hmm, is that really going to be safe? Oh, I need to move that memory barrier just one statement down. I don't want to have to do that.
0: Yeah. That's not that's not actually our job. Exactly. Well, and it's I guess that's the theory here is I, I've always had the sense that we, we're going to need a whole new language to do this, but uh, the Joe Duffy's of the world disagree. They think they can make an extension set that's, that's going to do it for us.
3: Mm. I think, they will do, it will do some of it for us. So you've still got to do the thinking and spot where the parallelism is possible. Right. You've got to be able to say, well, if I'm taking a soup, a soup production line, for example, I can build a can and cook the soup at the same time. And given several pots of soup, I can pour them into as many tins as I've got big big vats of soup. But I can't pour from one vat into several different pins at the same time so you've got task parallelism and data parallelism and you probably need to identify a lot of that yourself but that's relatively easy compared with the intricate mechanics of getting it right
0: Right, and, and I do see strata here of skill sets that maybe the architect is the one who's pointing out these areas of parallel opportunities, or you bring a consultant in to optimize, and this is another uh, tool in their kit where they'll go, hey, you know, looking at the way this program works, if we grab this piece and wrap it like this, that will now be parallel, and so on.
3: Potentially, yes. Um, I was at TechEd in Barcelona last year, and, again, speaking of Joe Duffy, he was talking there and saying threading probably isn't something that you want your junior developer to have anything to do with other than to look at what you've done. Right. Um, and I sort of agree.
2: There have some, been some really good abstractions that um, that make simple atomic threading work e- pretty easily. The, in .NET, you know, just the, the uh, asynchronous model is pretty, Pretty good at getting you there. Although, if you're doing anything with Windows Forms, you you have a problem there to overcome. But uh, I thought the background worker process in .NET 2.0 went a long way to sort of keep uh, to 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 allow you to do something in the background that's atomic. It it runs and then it and finishes. And then just
3: report to the UI every so often. Yeah,
2: yeah. that did a really good yeah. job.
4: I thought
3: it's it's a very good use of let's have a library to do it instead of putting things in the language. Um, yeah. But the nice thing is the way that Parallel Extensions uses the new language features in VB9 and C Sharp 3 to good use. So you've got as parallel enumerable as an extension method. And suddenly you can just put it in your link query and things look pleasant if you get it right. You've still got to think. So um, I've said I haven't done any of the parallel extension stuff in Anchor, but I have played around with a little toy project, which is to draw the Mandelbrot set. You know, ah, the, yeah. the fractal image that everyone's familiar with. Right. So I thought, well, that's what's called an embarrassingly parallelizable problem. So you can calculate the color of each dot completely separate form from every other dot. So I thought, well, how can we express this in a link query? And there are a different... Sorry, There are a number of different ways you can actually go about parallelizing that. Um, I've got a blog post about it that I guess we can put a link to um, for the show. Doing about 20 different benchmarks um, using parallel for each or as parallelizable in various different ways. And the fun bit wasn't necessarily getting the answers about, well, this took so long, this took so long. It was seeing what happened when you got it wrong. Right. Because sometimes ordering matters. Sometimes it doesn't. But if you've got just a stream of pixel colors coming, you've got to get them in the right order. Can you imagine if your TV took the incoming signal and just said, you know what, I'll just put these colors anywhere I see fit. (laughs) (laughs) And you get some interesting effects when you try doing that with something like the Mandelbrot set. Um, So it really makes you go back and think, well, what? requirements do I have from the threading library, okay, I can deal with those in this particular way, and maybe some of them will be less efficient, and there are other ways of designing it around it so that you don't need ordering. Instead of just spitting out the pixel colors, spit out pixel color and position, and then plot it at the right point when you get it. Fine. Suddenly, you don't have to order everything.
0: Right. The order of rendering on the screen doesn't matter as long as it's rendered in the right places.
3: Exactly but that means casting around a bit more information, you know, where it's got to go. So what's the trade-off going to be? And you can have, I find it a lot of fun to try with toy projects like this and just see what you can make it do. The bizarre thing I found was that actually using um, the parallel extensions library, I was able to more than double performance despite only having two processors. I still haven't worked out quite why that is because by the time you get into memory caches and all kinds of things, there's far too much going on for me to really grok properly. But yeah, it did an amazing job.
0: It's it's cool.
2: You know, I, when, when I read your bio, uh, the first, the fr- the very first thing that stuck out was that you're working at Google. You're a C sharp guy. You're working at Google in the UK.
3: Yeah, that's only happened since April this year, and started about. October last year, I, I got a, an email from a recruiter saying, hey, have you ever thought of working at Google? And I nearly fell off my chair. I have still no idea what it was that about my bio that stuck out to someone else. Um, there's,
2: there's one thing about Google that um, always intrigued me, which is you never hear like... The, the CEOs or the company or the employees or anything talking to the public about anything. Like Microsoft, you know, now they're doing these ads. They did it with Jerry Seinfeld and now I'm a PC and stuff. And, he, you know, they do conferences all the time. They're, we, the the execs are always talking. You know, Steve Jobs is always out there on the podium announcing some uh, device that automatically announces a device, you know. And and Google, it seems to be a little mysterious, I think.
3: Look at what Larry and Sergey go around. So I believe they were at the Android unveiling last week. And certainly I've seen uh, podcasts of things that Eric Schmidt's done. So he was on a program. I haven't seen it other than on the net called Mad Money. Yeah. Um, so he was interviewed there. Um, we don't tend to talk too much about what we're doing. We're very secretive to the outside world and very communicative to the
2: inside of Google. Yeah, and and well, I mean, I think it's intriguing because you know they just release something and everybody knows about it. Like because all eyes are on google.com for you know for for daily use of the computer. That uh, you know just the simplest little uh, hey, check this out on that page is the is product announcement enough?
3: Oh yes, and. You know, as soon as the slash. crowd get hold of anything that Google's done, whether it's good or you know, whether it's perceived to be bad, it does make front page news as far as geeks are concerned. Um, you know, if we sneeze, you will hear about it before it's reached anywhere, <laughs> which is quite a scary position to be in as a software developer, you know. The project that I'm working on, I can't say what it is yet because it hasn't been released. But when it has been released, I will have more users then than probably at any other time in my professional life immediately, and that is quite scary.
2: Yeah, well, how's uh, how's it like being an
4: employee?
3: It's fabulous. It really is. All the nice rumors are true. There is one downside though, which is I'm putting on weight at an alarming <laughs> rate.
2: <laughs> they have like a deli in every. Uh... You know, every building or something? We've
3: got a deli and main cafeteria in London, and they're always what are called micro-kitchens. So there's something I read on the BBC News page rather than hearing it internally in Google, but I could believe it, which is that Larry and Sergey says, oh, at least engineers or maybe any employee should never be more than a certain distance away from snacks. And it's true. It's just great. Um, The one downside of that, apart from the weight gain, is that you suddenly go to a restaurant? You know, if I take my wife out for a meal, and suddenly they're asking you to pay for the food, and it just <laughs> seems
2: wrong. <laughs> you know that somebody told me. Somebody told me recently that you know, f- first of all, you know, I'm a, I've been a heavy guy for ever since I quit smoking, and uh, I recently lost—I don't know—about eighty pounds, which Whoa. is you know, it's a good start, right? <laughs> so no, I'm serious. About half of the weight I need to lose, I lost, and then. I started working on some code and stuff, and I found that I just, you know, when I'm when I'm burning brain power, you get the munchies. You get, you got to eat. Yeah. And and somebody said, I think it might have been Mark Dunn, Yeah, you really got to feed your brain when you're when you're doing that kind of stuff. There was a report on this recently. And, yeah, that's what I'm going to say. And, yeah. and then I'm listening to NPR, and somebody came out comes out and says that people who uh, I think they did a study with women who were who were uh, using their brain and and the ones that used their brain ate more
3: necessarily mean that they were burning it off. Apparently, it makes you feel hungry, but yeah. I'm not sure whether it actually uses up those calories when you've got them in there.
2: So that that gives legitimacy to a term that I coined 10, 12 years ago when I first got into this... No, it must have been 20 years ago. I don't know. When I first got into this business called computer ass. <laughs>
3: right.
4: <laughs> I, I certainly effect.
3: remember at university... Um, if we were doing some supervision work on some maths, um, my friends and I would regularly go through many packs of biscuits, usually bourbon biscuits, just a few big packs in an afternoon, and you just wouldn't know where they'd gone.
0: Uh, you mentioned Stack Overflow, and I don't think we've ever brought it up on the show.
3: Well, it's kind of recent, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, I think it it was in private beta for a while, and it's just recently come out of privacy and into public beta. So I only signed up last Friday, and I'm addicted already.
0: It's uh, This is Joel Swolsky and, uh, and Jeff Atwood's yep. Uh, yep. little beast. Uh, really, the like I, I mean, your comment was, uh, this is the end of newsgroups as we've known it.
3: Yeah, I, I've always been a big fan of newsgroups as opposed to web forums. Uh, so I've got my own custom newsreader. So it's based on uh, what was Microplanet Gravity, and it's now an open-source newsreader called Gravity. Um, and it's just customized a little bit. So if anyone, if any of your listeners uh, do read the C-sharp news group, you'll be used to me replying to a post and pretty much just saying, could you post a short but complete example of the problem, C, and then a URL for exactly what I mean. And I was writing that enough that I thought, well, it's worth just breaking into the code. And if I now hit control and one, then it just comes into the post very quickly, automatically. So it's, it's nice to have custom clients. But at the same time, the Stack Overflow editor and the whole system just seems to work much, much better than anything else I've seen. So the fact that you've got a wiki-like editor and it's, it's got all the little buttons above to do bold, etc., but there's also a preview window. So you're typing just in the plain text so you can write the wiki markup yourself or markdown, I think they call it. Um, but you can write it all yourself and see what it's going to look like at the same time. And I've never seen that fail in the very short time that I've been using the site.
0: If you go to the site, this is stackoverflow.com. Yep. It doesn't look that elaborate. This is pretty straight up. You ask a question, people answer it. There's a hundred sites or a thousand sites like that out there. What is up with this one? Is this something about what they're doing here that seems to be working better?
3: Well, I think it's partly a matter of getting critical mass. And obviously, you throw the names Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood around, and people will come just have a look. And then they'll see a question that, they think is interesting, and they'll answer it, and, oh, they're addicted. So you've got to get critical math for a site, and you've got to make it slick. And they really have made it very, very slick, as I say, better than any other web forum I've seen. And the fact that it's just one forum, effectively. So there are tags. I've got shortcuts on my web browser to show me the newest C-sharp posts. But equally, I know that there may be some Java and c posts there which someone who had a shortcut to say just give me the java ones would see because it's just by tags So it's a little bit like going from sorting everything in folders to just using search in gmail
0: a little more efficient
3: well not just efficient it means that you can get more of an overlap so if you've got a question that really is relevant to c sharp and vb you don't want to have two different posts on two completely separate forums, probably two whole different websites, just to get that answered. You want to post it in one place and know that the Java people will see it, the C Sharp people will see it. They can both comment on it and see each other's responses. It just works really nicely. It's the first thing, as I say, that I think might take me away from news groups. I'm still posting there at the moment, but maybe it'll shift the balance of power. Who knows?
0: Hmm. Interesting. You you know, uh, I don't know many folks that are in your situation where half your time you're programming in Java and half your time you're programming in C Sharp.
3: Yeah. I know a few. I've actually bounced back and forth over my career. So I started, I was originally at at Digital very briefly before um, Compaq bought us, and uh, my business unit was made redundant. Um, A bunch of us started a new company, which was initially doing Java and then a long time later started doing some some C sharp then I went to a security a content security company where I did some C sharp and then bounced to Java and did Java and C sharp interacting and then did just java and then I moved to another company which did just C sharp so i 've just been bouncing back and forth um, and now i'm doing both depending on whether i 'm working on my main project or my twenty percent time and obviously in the news groups i'm Keeping up with the traffic, let's say <laughs> uh,
0: I mean I've, I've often thought that that the languages were very similar, but uh, you know if you're actually switching back and forth real time you know day to day, do you find yourself mixing syntax
3: and um, mostly with the for each statement, so oh. I'll find myself typing for each in Java or in C sharp writing for and then variable declaration colon the collection instead of for each such-and-such in the collection, Um, and I'll look at it for about five seconds and think, oh. But yeah, that's (laughs) that's most of the problem. The rest of the time, it really helps that the naming conventions are different. There are some people who like to stick with the same conventions um, across different languages, but I find that by having a different convention for method names in particular, it just reinforces which language I'm talking about so I can use the right idioms, so there isn't the equivalent of iDisposable in Java, unfortunately. So I'll know that I've got to use a try finally, but when I'm back in C-sharp land, I'll just be in C-sharp mode, and as as I say, it's reinforced by the naming conventions. Right. So that's really handy. Um, But I do find the languages started off very similar, but as C-sharp 2 came along, and then C-sharp 3 in particular, the languages are getting really quite quite disparate and i miss lambda expressions almost every day of my life
0: (laughs) every minute that you're working in java
3: yeah whenever i'm doing at the moment what i'm doing is looking through various collections and trying to transform them and filter them etc i'm thinking i could do this in about three lines of link but no it's java i've got to build anonymous classes and all kinds of nasty stuff
2: somebody who doesn't understand Lambda, for somebody who's new to Lambda expressions, what kind of advice can you give somebody in terms of how much they really have to study before they can be productive
4: with it?
3: I would say try, if you're going to try to learn the whole of Link or at least use Link, not just Lambda expressions in isolation. I am personally a bottom-up kind of thinker, so I like to understand each of the individual little building blocks and then start putting them together. So I wouldn't start off with a query expression, because there's just so much that looks like magic to start with. And that's fine if you're reading what someone else has done, but it's useless as soon as you start trying to write something yourself. It will behave slightly differently to how you'd expect, and you think, well, "What's going on?" If you ex- if you execute the same what looks like the same query twice, having changed a variable between the two executions, well, in some cases. It will have changed the output, and in some cases it won't. And it's obvious when you actually know the underpinnings, but it's not at all obvious when you first look at it. So I'd say learn the building blocks okay. and also stick to link to objects. Just to start with, but you really don't need the added headaches of link to SQL or entity framework, etc. I'm a bit of an old fuddy-duddy. I... I like console applications as a, a way of learning because GUI programming is hard. Yeah, it's sort of pretty to be able to drag a button, but if all I want to do is see, does this method to, say, format a string do what I want it to, I really don't want to have to drag a button and an input form and do this, that, and the other just to print out some text. So I like console applications keep everything really simple, and that way, hopefully, you can understand everything apart from the new one little concept that you're trying to learn. If you can understand all of the rest of your code you're in a much better position to learn that new thing.
0: I, I agree with you that, I, I think I would rephrase it, I would say steer clear of Linked to SQL. Right. Because I, I love Linked to XML.
3: Oh, yeah. It's, it's lovely, yeah. but at the same time, it's something else new.
0: I just find it so much much less painful than XQuery or XPath or any other method of getting at oh, yeah. XML.
3: Yeah. Um, but I'd say, while you're learning Lambda expressions be clear of XML completely. <laughs> just, <laughs> just toy around, play around with some really simple collections, stick some strings into an array or whatever you want to do, but keep it simple. Just say, what if I do some, something a little bit different? And if it's a really simple application where you can see all the working parts, then it makes it a lot easier to understand that one new part. But to be honest, linked objects is my favorite part of linked just because it's so universally useful. So, not every project will use XML. Certainly, not every project will use SQL Server. But almost everything you ever do will use some sort of whether it's an in-memory collection or a file that you want to iterate over one line at a time, or something that is fundamentally a sequence. Almost everything will do that. So, when, when you've got linked objects behind you, that just becomes easier. So, if you concentrate on that, and when you're really familiar with linked objects, everything else just starts slotting into place.
2: Uh, John, is, we're coming down to the end of the show. Is there any resources you want to plug or anything you want to say? Hi, Mom. And, you know, sort of <laughs> wrapping it up kind of thing.
3: Um, well, obviously, I'd you know, like to plug my book a bit. Um, so we mentioned it before, C Sharp In Depth. If you're this a is a Manning enough, book. Really? Pardon?
0: That's a Manning book.
3: Yes, it's a Manning book. So from the people that brought you Link in Action. Um, it's I've not seen anything that's quite like it because most other books try to teach you the language and the framework. For instance, there are some very good books, Accelerated C Sharp 2008 and uh, C Sharp 3.0 in a nutshell. Very good books if you want to learn language and framework. I specifically had one target audience in mind, which was people who already know C Sharp 1 and want to learn 2 and 3. And that's all. That's all that's in it. So it's a fairly slender book, but it probably tackles that that one topic of the language hopefully in more depth than anything else I've read.
0: And available as an e-book as well as a, a softbound book.
3: Indeed. Um, although if you buy the softbound book, you get the ebook for free. Cool. So, um, so that's nice. And I would just encourage anyone who's interested in C-sharp, language topics, whatever, get in touch with me, look at the blog, go on to Stack Overflow. There's a lot of fun to be had just playing with languages.
2: Excellent. John, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. It's been great to be here. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. DotNet Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more DotNet Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. by the FCC